Hey, if I haven't met you, my name is Pastor Mike Lotzer, and we're starting a new sermon series today called I Dare You. Anybody watch the Christmas story? Remember that? You know, remember that unfortunate moment where he didn't just dare, it was a double dog dare, like the, the tongue was on the pole, and the fire department had to come, right? Any, anybody have terrible memories from childhood where somebody dared you to do something and you regret that to this day, it caused you great physical or mental anguish, maybe not childhood, maybe it was adulthood, uh, maybe it was college. We like to dare each other to do things. In this series, we're going to dare each other to do the right things. We said uh, in the Easter message that essentially what, what we need as a culture and individuals and as followers of Christ right now in this moment, two things among many, forgiveness and courage. Our culture seems to have lost its mechanism to forgive And we have that mechanism in Jesus Christ and the cross. And courage is needed in a culture that cancels each other and that is always walking on eggshells. Courage to live our convictions, courage to ask for forgiveness and offer forgiveness, courage for all sorts of things. How do you become a more courageous person? Do you you just try really hard and white knuckle it? Do you just say, I'm going to be brave. I promise myself I'm going to be brave. You can try that but it doesn't work. Really, one of the the time-tested ways men and women become more courageous is they hang out with other people who have developed godly courage. And that's what we'll be doing in the sermon series. We're gonna jump around in the Old Testament and the New Testament and look at different case studies in courage, different examples of people. And today, you are in for an awkward, interesting text. Uh, We are going to Judges chapter three. If you didn't grow up in the church, you might hardly believe this stuff is in the Bible. We're looking at a man named Ehud. Now, a little background before we jump in there. <clears throat> the book of Judges chronicles a period of time right after Moses has died, and then Joshua took over, leading the people into the promised land. Joshua has now died, and, and now it is a time of judges. They don't have a king like other nations around them. They don't really have an appointed leader, and so they get in this cycle of disobeying God And then the pain point gets bad enough where they cry out to God and God lifts up, raises up a rescuer or a judge. And we will read in chapter three about the second judge uh, for the Hebrew people. His name is Ehud. Let's go to the text. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and Amalekites. Those two are historic enemies of the Israeli people. And, and Eglon, this evil king, brings that together, makes a posse, and then went out and they defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. Pause there. For 18 years, the people of God, who are meant to be a light to the nations, who are meant to be self-governed autonomously to follow the one true God, Yahweh, are now under the boot of a foreign power for 18 years. It's a long time. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer, that's a synonym for judge in Hebrew, a rescuer, a judge, a savior to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. It is important that he's left-handed. We'll get back to that in a moment. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. That's what you did when you were a subgroup of a dictator, every interval in the year, you would bring a tribute of goods to them, kind of like an unfair tax. 
So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. The Hebrew is emphatic here, like fatter than anyone should be able to become fat in that time and place. After delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. But when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back somewhere on the border of their land. He came to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. So the king commanded his servants, be quiet. And he sent them all out of the room. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. As King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger, and the king's bowels emptied. Then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. After Ehud was gone, the king's servant returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room, so they waited. But when the king didn't come out, after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. And when they opened the doors, they found their master dead on the floor. While the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped, passing the stone idols on his way to Sarai. When he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud sounded a call to arms. He then he led a band of Israelites down from the hills. Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him. And the Israelites took control of the shallow crossing of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. They attacked the Moabites and killed about 10,000 of their strongest and most able-bodied warriors, not one of them escaped. So Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and there was peace in the land for 80 years. This is God's word. What a story. Can I ask you a question by show of hands? How many of you are left-handed? Okay, so what do you got? Maybe a fifth of the room? Sixth of the room, it's not a huge part of the population. To understand the story we just read, we need to understand a few things. One, we need to understand that in the ancient world, to be left-handed was considered to have a severe disability, a disability worth having shame brought upon you. And so we'll get back to that. But, but the first thing, even beyond being left-handed, we need to understand is the pattern we've kind of alluded to. If you're taking notes, sin causes suffering, people cry out, and God raises the rescuer. This is a, a pattern that happens throughout the book of Judges. Ehud is the second judge. Orion is the first. Uh, there's a period of lesser years of rebellion under the first judge, something like eight years. And then Orion steps up as a judge. God raises him up after the people cry out for mercy. And then there's a period of uh, basically one generation, one lifespan of peace. And then what happens people fall back into sin. Sin, as we said in the Easter message, is missing the mark. If it's an archery term, if you're pulling that bow back, and whether you miss the apple by 10 yards or 10 millimeters really doesn't matter. It missed, and, and sin is when we miss the design that God has for human beings to, to flourish with each other and in relationship to him. It introduces all kinds of brokenness, and we all have sin. Sin is a disability in and of itself, and The bad news is, my friend, we're all disabled by sin. Every one of us. 
This pattern doesn't just happen in Judges 3 and throughout the book of Judges. It's kind of the pattern that happens in our lives, if we're honest, right? We get into sin, just like the people turn to idolatry. Idolatry is making even a good thing, an ultimate thing, putting something in the God spot that doesn't belong in the God spot. And eventually, our pain catches up, and we cry out to God, help. And God, in his mercy, raises a rescuer. And as Christians, we would say, raises the rescuer. He shows up in the flesh. He sends his own son to rescue us, that whoever believes in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is made right with God and has the power to become right with each other. The problem is the human tendency, just like the tendency in the book of Judges, is to fall back into this pattern and not break the pattern. Anybody else relate to that? So back to being left-handed. In Hebrew, left-handed means right-handed, restricted, or bound. There's not a word in Hebrew, the language that the Old Testament has written, for left-handed. It doesn't exist. It just means you can't functionally be right-handed. It just means you're bound. Now, why would it be so culturally important to be right-handed? Well, remember that toilet paper shortage we went through about a year ago? Imagine living in a chronic toilet paper shortage, but you still had to wipe. How many people are right-handed in the culture, in any given culture? How many people are left-handed? The genes are pretty clear. The majority of people are right-handed in every human culture that's ever existed. And so if you've got to pick between two hands for a dirty job, sorry, left-handed people. We're going to just make a rule that everybody's left hand is not something that's clean or to be touched. I mean, you can still wash your hands after, but do you really want to shake hands after that? That is actually true in parts of the Middle East today. It's very culturally inappropriate. And there's other reasons, and we, we don't have time to get into it. But the point is, if you were born into this culture in this time and place, and you were left-handed, you don't get to use your left hand. Have you ever tried to throw a football with your non-dominant hand? write your name? It's super hard. It's really difficult. So this is no little disability that is thrust on upon anybody who is left-handed. They don't get picked for the sports team. They're not going to be, um, you know, recording things on a scroll because their handwriting is atrocious, right? You, you're not probably going to make top chef back in the, you know, because who's going to trust you with a knife and you're non- dominant hand. You can't even do that, so you have to use your non-dominant hand. To be left-handed isn't just a disability. It's to be looked down upon and to be excluded from the group, and that is why this is such an incredible text. If you're taking notes, the rescuer in this instance is unexpected and effective because he is disabled. Ehud is handicapped, and we don't know exactly how he was nominated for the job to bring tribute to this evil king, but he is elected. God raised him up. God has a way of raising up people that are unlikely heroes. If you've read through scripture, you'll, you'll see this. Jesus Christ himself comes not in the form that the religious group that he belongs to expects. They wanted somebody to come on a war horse with the command of an army that could take out the most sophisticated war machine the world had ever known, the Roman Empire. If he has miraculous abilities, quit healing the sick and stuff, use that to bring some lightning bolts down. That's what they expected. They expected a political overthrow of the tyranny around them, just like 
had happened throughout their history. God shows up and throws, overthrows evil kings, but that's not how Christ shows up. He shows up in a much more humble package. And his death didn't seem to do much at the time, but it defeats not just the Roman Empire over time, it defeats sin and death throughout all of human linear history. God has a way of raising up rescuers who are unexpected. They're unlikely heroes, but they're effective because they're so unexpected. No word for left-handed, and this guy who's left-handed is raised up. Now, to add misery to a life of being excluded, he's from one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Which one is it? The tribe of Benjamin. What does Benjamin mean? Son of the right hand. So it's like the name of the tribe I'm from celebrates our (laughs) right-handedness, and I'm left-handed. Thanks for this, God. Like, the great lot that you gave me, and now you want to raise me up to lead tribute and, and basically become a professional assassin, what with my non-dominant hand that I can barely write my name with? That's Ehud's story. Nevertheless, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. So we read the story, basically, Ehud volunteers, or is voluntold, we don't know, to lead the tribute. This would have been a long processional. Wealth did not come in 401ks and Bitcoin and actual currency back then as much as it came on four legs and in big troughs of grain and crops, cured meats. And so it would be like a big parade that a a vassal nation would need to take a long journey and then present themselves before the king. And they chose the left-handed guy, Ehud, from the tribe that's so good at being right-handed to lead this thing. And he leads it, and he bows before this, uh, the Hebrew says, grossly, unbelievably fat, is what the term was. And that's important not to make fun of anyone who's overweight or underweight, but because in the ancient world, food is scarce, meat is scarce, there's no preservatives, there's no fillers and stuff. It's really easy to get overweight in this culture. I've noticed that. You know, like mine goes up and down. It's super hard to get overweight in the ancient culture, even if you're a king it is. And so it's kind of something of an accomplishment to be so so large that it's hard to move. In this culture, it's also something of an indictment on the king. It'd be like Jabba the Hutt, you know, like in the Star Wars trilogy. Like he, he can't really move very well. And, and that's, that's kind of reflective of his character because he has all this power as this boss lord and all he chooses to do is sit here and not defend anybody. And so... So the rescuer is unexpected and effective, not in spite of the fact that he's disabled, but because he is disabled. So the story goes like this. He he leads the tribute. He walks however many miles back with the empty tribute. And then he sees this mile marker that's full of idols worshiping foreign gods. And maybe like the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, he looked around at a world full of idols and he just couldn't stand it. Maybe it was all planned out. We don't know, but either way, he turns back on his own into hostile territory. But don't worry, who's going to see this guy as a threat? A lot of people who are left-handed would just walk with their right hand completely straight like this. They would wear a cloak, and this would signify to other people, yes, I'm going to use my left hand. I can't use my right hand. Sometimes their right hand would wither 
for this behavior, and so they actually like literally came to not be able to use their right hand. Some people would avoid them because they had given up on trying to use their non-dominant hand. They just couldn't do it, so they're going to use their unclean hand. And so people kind of just, they don't think much of him. And yet he walks right back up to the palace steps of the king, and he says, hey, king, I've got a secret message for you. Who knows if the king made fun of him or whatever, but the king didn't see him as a threat, that's for sure. And he'd already brought all his tribute, and he thought, this is kind of interesting. As a side note, in Hebrew, there's the, the word for God, Yahweh, which is the personal name for God for the Israelites. He says in Judges chapter 3, hey, king, I've got a personal message for you, a secret message from Elohim. He uses the name for God that Hebrews would recognize as God, just like we would say the Lord or God, but, but Jesus Christ when we say Jesus Christ is Lord, we're, we're really dialing in what we mean. He says Elohim, and it piques the king's interest. And the, it's like the king's like, all right, let's, let's have audience up in my upper chambers. Kings would build on top of their tall palace a lattice in structure where the wind could kind of move through because this is a hot area. And that's usually where they went to relieve themselves in their chamber pot or to, to just be alone or to meditate. So it was kind of an honor to be let up into their own holy of holies. But it's also indicative of the fact that the king sees this guy as anything but a threat. He dismisses his whole palace guard. He's like, all right, I want to hear this secret message from Elohim. And he walks up there, and he bows before him. Now, when you draw a sword, I know you guys are so used to drawing swords, and you wear it on your hip, if I'm right-handed, is it natural for me to pull it from my right hip? No. Haven't you seen Monty Python? The, any sword movie? You always put it on your non-dominant hip, right? So if I'm right-handed, that thing's going to my left whoosh, hip so I can pull the sword out. If I'm left-handed, it's going on my right hip. He's probably walking like this. No one would suspect in a million years he's got a sword attached to his right hip, a sword that's a cubit long. A cubit is an elbow to a, the first knuckle. Probably doesn't have a hilt on it to conceal it. And he says, here's your secret message. And with that unclean left hand, pulls a sword and buries it in this king's gut. Now, the Hebrew is, is kind of comical here. It's meant to be comical. It's memorable. So it's almost like he didn't try to bury it, but it buried itself. And then he drops it. And when you bury a sword in the intestines of somebody of the right size, I guess, or any size, you just, their bowels kind of unload. And so he sneaks away, and some commentators said he wouldn't have had to even sneak away. They, they, you just don't even see people who are disabled in this culture. That person's crippled. They're, they're disabled, just whatever. And then the guards are standing outside thinking, this is taking kind of a long time. But then the guard says to the other guard, do you smell that? Remember the last time we had interrupted King Eglon when he was on the chamber pot? That didn't go so well. He likes his time. Like, just give it a few minutes. Meanwhile, the most unlikely hero in Israel's story goes and rallies the troops. And he doesn't just say, hey, I pulled off a heist and now you guys militarily do your thing. He said, follow me. And that's a, a key moment in the history of Israel. They're like, we're going to follow a left-handed guy, a disabled guy? As a side note, he's from the tribe of Benjamin and 
ever since this part in uh, Judges chapter 3, scholars note that more and more people in the tribe of Benjamin are allowed to be ambidextrous. They no longer in that tribe because the second judge of all the judges is Ehud, the left-handed savior of the people. Now they're allowed to be left-handed if they want to be left-handed or right-handed. And because a lot of them kind of tried to figure out both, they became the vanguard element of the battle from their point on because it turns out there's a great advantage of being able to use a sword in both of your hands. That's how they trained. It's kind of a cool little side note. So, the evil king loses his throne because a disabled, quote-unquote, nobody trusts wholly in God to use him in his weakness. Let me just read a list of disabilities for you. Vision impairment. Deaf or hard of hearing. Mental health conditions. Intellectual disabilities. Acquired brain injuries. Dyslexia. Limb loss. Depression. Dementia. Skin disorders. Digestive systems. Eating disorders. Respiratory disorders. Chronic pain. Addiction. Cancer. Any of those ring a bell for any of us? I like Rick Warren. He kind of expands his definition of disabilities or weaknesses that we deal with in life. In his Celebrate Recovery program, he says, whatever is a, a hurt, a habit, or a hang-up that's holding you back, that can be defined as something that you have to contend with. But that also is something that God can use in a powerful way for his glory. My friends, we're getting to the third point quick here, but I dare you. I dare you to trust God, to use your disability to rescue other people. I dare you. A good friend of mine was talking uh, a year or two ago. He, he uh, had to quit alcohol. He was developing a problem with it. And I was just checking in, seeing how he's doing. Because he used to be a bouncer at a bar. And so he really liked the bar scene. He likes music. It was a real hard sacrifice for him, for his family. But he said, Mike, I have this vision of starting something called a dry lounge. What's a dry lounge? But it has all the elements of a bar, like great musicians and the vibe and the design. But it's for people like me who just feel like we're too good at drinking. <laughs> so we can't do that anymore. But we, we miss the fellowship. And, I, and he shared his vision with me. I thought, how cool is that? How cool is that? Another friend of mine, uh, he lost two limbs in Iraq, Ryan Cools. And he went through a period of time where he just really didn't know if he, he would ever matter again. He's an infantry captain. Like, these are take-charge type of guys. He lost one leg up here, and one arm here, dominant arm. What are you going to do now? Well, he's a man of faith. And just last year, he worked with Congress to pass the Ryan Cools Adaptive Housing Improvement Act to make sure anybody who has a combat-related limb loss or something severe that requires a wheelchair, right before this act, like the government would give a little bit of money to widen hallways and doors, but only once. That meant that you could never move for many people. So he went to Congress. He became the head of mental health at Wounded Warrior Project. He's a rock star. Ryan's a person I look up to as much as anybody. What would happen if my friend who wanted to start the dry lounge or my friend who lost his limbs in Iraq just said, this defines me. Now, it's easy to say that and preach that, but 10 years after my second tour in, in the Army, 
I went into the VA and I got some hearing loss and a back injury that flared up and I, got, I was honest with them about some nightmares that kept me up from a rocket attack where I lost friends. And, and then a few months later, I got a letter in the mail that said, you're now a disabled veteran. And man, did that hurt. And then they sent me a card just in case I forgot. <laughs> and I, was, I was struggling with that, guys. Where does that struggle come from? Pride, I suppose. I'm able-bodied. I'm not disabled. You can't say that about me. And my wife and other good friends said, why does that have to define you? And why doesn't it occur to you that God might want to use that to help other people? Next weekend, I'll lead a team of military couples who will be a leadership team who will take 20 other active duty and veteran couples for a weekend to do a marriage skills workshop. I've been doing that for a number of years now. And we'll see marriages rescued and vow renewals and lives completely transformed. And it won't be easy. But do you think I'm more equipped for having come to peace with the fact that, yes, I have weaknesses and limitations and hurts and hang-ups just like everybody else? And yes, if I trust God, God can use my disability to rescue other people. So let's make it a little bit more personal. The Apostle Paul, if you read through the New Testament, got to a point where he was almost depressed. He was admitting in his own letters, I'm not a very good preacher. I'm not that articulate. People notice. I'm not very good looking. I'm kind of short and bald and like, people don't seem to want to follow my charisma, but I'm still sent. And now they've locked me up and I'm in prison. So now I'm like impaired in my appearance. I'm impaired in my my verbal ability to communicate the gospel, and now I'm, I'm impaired, like, mobily impaired. I can't even leave. I'm, I'm on house arrest. And it's, it's as if he's answering his own doubts. He's preaching to his own position. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, he says this, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble by birth, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Maybe that weakness, that disability, that handicap, that trauma that you experienced, that hurt habit or hang-up that you have is not meant to excuse you from meaningful service in the kingdom but rather it's the thing that God wants to use to glorify his name, to rescue other people. And at the end of it, you'll celebrate with him, but you won't be tempted for a second to high-five yourself and and become this arrogant, self-worshipping person because you knew all along it was the weakness that God used, not the achievement, not the looking the part. Some of us, we're, we're stubborn, And just like we saw a video clip last Sunday that moved us, we need to see an example that really gets us to to drop our excuses. 
because we've listened to Ehud's story. And though we do feel left-handed, metaphorically speaking, we really doubt that God could use even that. With that in mind, I'd like to introduce you to a man named Nicholas who has removed any excuse I feel I have. Take a look at the screens. I was born in Melbourne, Australia, 1982, and my parents had no idea that I was going to be born without arms or legs. I was the only one that I ever saw without limbs. My faith in Jesus Christ was sealed after seven years of wondering why, God, I was born this way. Uh, he answered me very clearly through John chapter 9. And I gave my life to Jesus at 15 after reading about how he came across a man who was born blind. And I'm like, hey, hold on a second. This looks interesting. <laughs> and no one knew why he was born that way. I'm like, perfect. So I read on and in verse 3 of the ninth chapter, Jesus said, it was done so that the works of God would be revealed through him. And I'm like, wow, God, if you had a plan for the blind man, you do have a plan for me. And that was the beginning of my personal relationship with Jesus. Youth groups were starting to call me. Churches were starting to call me. Opportunities were opening up everywhere for me to share my testimony. I was speaking in front of 300 sophomore public high school students. Three minutes into it, half the girls were crying. One girl in the middle of the room started weeping. She put up her hand and she said, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but can I come up there and give you a hug? In front of everyone, she came and she hugged me. She cried on my shoulder and whispered in my ear, no one's ever told me that they love me. No one's ever told me that I'm beautiful the way that I am. I couldn't believe it, it changed my life. That was when I knew. I was called to be a worldwide evangelist. seen face-to-face -face a half a million souls say yes to Jesus and be plugged into a local church. As crazy as it sounds, our goal at Life Without Limbs Ministry is to preach to every single soul on the planet. Seven billion people. We believe that this goal is possible as the Holy Spirit is gathering an army and building up supporters to send us and accomplish this mission. God can use a man without arms and legs to be his hands and feet, then he will certainly use any willing heart. You never know what God will do with your broken pieces until you give God your broken pieces. So the question is, are you a willing heart? Sure, you have broken pieces. We all do. None of us have it all together. Every one of us suffer under the disability that is sin. But have you given him? 
your broken pieces, like Ehud gave him his broken pieces? What weakness do you feel disqualifies you from God's service, my friends? You went through a divorce, did you? We're gonna bring some of the most talented marriage counselor couples to this retreat, this military retreat that I've ever worked with. And they're wise and talented because they went through a terrible, painful divorce and God healed them and made them whole. Do you feel like you have sin in your life that's habitual? What if God wanted to use you to reach out to somebody else who has that same habitual sin and be honest and say, you're not alone, it's gonna be okay? Do you feel like you just don't get it and everybody else gets it and you don't get it? Guess what? At any given time, half the room feels like they don't get it and they're the only ones. What if you're honest about that? You feel insecure about your, your physical appearance? What if God used you like he used Nicholas to say, I feel insecure about my physical appearance. I don't have arms and legs. Hello. And then a little girl said, no one's ever told me I'm beautiful and I matter. Friends, I pray that this church becomes a powerhouse of vulnerability, of people who have taken the right dare, not to touch their tongue to frozen phone poles, but to say, yes, God, I'll trust in you to use every one of my disabilities, every one of my weaknesses, every one of my shortcomings to rescue people in your name. May it be so.